0: The Rebbe raised a very interesting question on the renowned tale of Rabbi Amnoin and Unasana Tekev. However, we're going to show during this class that this comment was just the tip of the iceberg, because we're going to delve deeper into the Rebbe's reaction to 10 distinct stories all of whom have the common denominator that they raise halachic or ethical concerns. Indeed, stories mirror, cherish values and shape communal norms, which underscores the significance of this exploration. The Chido, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, wrote the Sefer, Shem and in Shem Hagdolim he writes about many Gdole Yisrael and their works. This book Shem Hagdolim was printed for the first time in the year 1774. Anyway, the Chida writes as follows: UveEmes Ein LaAbed Hazman I am not going to waste my time arguing on this individual. Ki Adam because. He would hear from anybody and write. Anything that he found or heard. In any way, he transcribed it. Despite the fact that they are untrue. He's quoting the Lashon Apostol, that just like when the Yidin left Mitzrayim, the rabble, the Erev Rav, went uh, along with them. So in this book... There's a lot of negative information, the of Rav, that is part of this Sefer. Who's he writing against over here? He's writing against the Sefer Shalshalas Hakabalah. The Shalshalas Hakabala was a Sefer that was printed in the year 1586. The Mechaber's name was Rabbi Gedalia ibn Yechia. And he, his family had origins in Spain, Portugal, and he himself lived in Italy. And he published this work, Shalshalas Hakabala, which as you can probably tell from the name, it's much about Jewish history. And here we hear the Chida criticizing him, and quite harshly, that uh, the work has many flaws. The Chida continues and says, ba'al In fact, I'm particularly surprised about the author of a different historical work, the Seidar Adoides. The Seidar Adoides was a work that was published just a few years before the Chida printed his Shemak Doilim. The Rabbi Heel Michal Halperin, he was a Rav in Minsk, He printed the Sayyid al-Zayris in the year 1769. And the Chidot praises him here and says his work is really good. The one problem his work has is that he quotes the Shalshalas HaKabala too often. And this was a mistake. The Chidot continues and says that as he reads the Shalshalas HaKabala, he reads it with a pencil. And he finds himself marking off the pages. Here he says, I write, Lahadam. On the next page, I find myself writing Einze Ms. On the next page, I find myself writing Laysa. And he says, I can't mention all of them, Ki rabim him because there are so many. So this is obviously a very harsh attack on the Sefer, Shalshalas Hakabala. So let's look at one of the more famous passages of the Shalshalas HaKabala. And that relates, as we're approaching now to the time of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, to the famous story about Unasana Toikif and the story of Amnon. Cause in the Shalshalas Hakabbalah, he repeats this story, and the way he says it, it's a very well-known story. And he says that the bishop has a meeting with uh, Reb Amnon of Mainz in Germany, and he's conver- he's convincing him or trying to convince him that Reb Amnon should convert. And finally, one time, Reb Amnon said that give him three days uh, for him to think about it. And then the lashon is, The second he left, some he realized, that he allowed his mouth to imply that there's a doubt and a possibility that perhaps he will convert, and he was really upset about this. On the third day, he refused to go back to the bishop. So they brought him by force. And Rab Amnoin then famously says the following line, Es ani Odoin, Adun, I will proclaim the judgment that should happen to me. As Lishani sheker Dina that my tongue that lied, that spoke an untruth, saying, Give me three days to think about it, that should be excised, it should be removed. And the, the author continues to say, Kiraza hashem. Because why did Rab Amnoin say this? It's quite a shocking thing to ask that a tongue be removed because he wanted to make a Kiddush Hashem because he was so upset at himself for having allowed his mouth to speak a doubt about Judaism. And then the bishop famously responds and says, No, the tongue spoke positively. It was a good idea for you to think about this for three days. I will uh, cut off your legs for not coming to me. And I will torture your entirety of your body. Uh, and indeed, he commanded his servants, and they cut off the, uh, the toes and his fingers. This is a story that the Shalshalas HaKabala says. The story then continues that he was brought to Shul, uh, and uh, he was placed next to the Chazin. He was suffering. He said the Tfila on he passed away. And then three days later, he appeared in a dream to one of the Rabanim and taught him the Tfilah that he had said. Okay. Now, there is an interesting letter of the Rabbah that is printed in Igris Kodesh, uh, Chei It's a letter from the spring of 1954. And here the Rebbe is writing to an unknown individual. His name was not placed in this letter. This individual was publishing a book where it appears... Was the halachas and and history of the Yamim tovim as well as the halachas of Shabbos as well? This was not geared for rabbanim. This was geared for amaratsim. It was going to be written in Yiddish, maybe an English section as well. And from the tone, you're able to tell that this was going to be a, a book geared for people who knew very little about uh, Yiddishkeit. Um, and uh, the Rebbe responds to him with a very lengthy letter, uh, with about fifty. Items marked up for correction, where the Rebbe felt that it would be damaging or not a good idea to write about specific details. Some of them because uh, they're not true, some of them because uh, it's a murky uh, or debatable issue. Uh, And uh, it's a subject that has a fascinating letter that doesn't need to concern us too much right now, except for the following point. When it comes to the section on Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe wrote to him as follows, This that you copied, you transcribed from earlier sources, The Rebbe Amnoin said how he should be punished. Doubtful whether this is true. Why? Why is the Rebbe questioning the veracity of this detail of the story? Because it is forbidden for a person to cause damage, to wound themselves, to cut off a body part, right? The very famous essay that Rabbi uh, Zevin wrote uh, in the 1930s about uh, Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, and where he, uh, Rabbi Zevin, develops at length how Shylock has no right to demand a pound of flesh, nor does Antonio have a right to give up a pound of flesh, because a part of the body doesn't belong to us, and we don't have the right either to do it ourselves or to ask someone else to, uh, cut off chas Shalom a body part. And so therefore, how could Rebbe Amnon say to the, to the bishop, cut off my tongue? Then the rabbi continues with the following line. It is known that there are a number of items in this work, that are doubtful, not true, as is brought in many places. Indeed, we saw a moment ago how the Chida criticized Rebbe Gedalia Ibn Yichya for this issue. And so the Rebbe seems to be alluding to this and therefore questioning the story of Reb Amnoin, did this indeed happen, at least this particular detail of the story? Now, what's interesting here is as follows. In 1956, Kahos, the publishing house of Labavitch, released a book called The Complete Story of Tishrei. And I have a friend, a shliach in Michigan, whose name is Rabbi Levi Dubov, and he called this uh, to my attention. On page 67 in this work, it says the story of Nesana and it says the story of Reb Amnoin, and the p- relevant passage reads as follows. Sir, Rabbi Amnon said, By requesting three days for consideration, I have sinned gravely against my God. These brave words enraged the Duke even more. For sinning against your God, the Duke said angrily, let him avenge himself. I shall punish you for disobeying my orders. Your legs sinned against me, for they refused to come to me. Therefore, your legs shall be cut off. What's notable here is that you have the whole story, all of the details, except one thing. The idea that Rabbi Online, the fact that Rabbi online said, cut off my tongue, that has been removed from the story and it does not appear here. All he says is, by requesting three days, I have sinned greatly against my God. That is all that we have over here. In the introduction to this book, Rabbi Nissen Mendel, who is the author of this book, writes that he uh, thanks very much the Labavitcher Rebbe for having reviewed the entire book and for marking it up with many suggestions and, and, and edits, I think it uh, it is quite obvious to uh, suggest what happened over here. That uh, I assume that uh, Rabbi Nissim Mendel' his first draft included the story the way it is indeed published in uh, the earlier sources. Why would he have done differently? But then. Uh, knowing that the Rebbe reviewed this and offered edits, it seems very likely that the Rebbe asked that this be corrected, in line with the letter that he wrote just two years earlier in the spring of 1954 to this uh, unknown uh, author of that book. And, uh, and that's the story behind this omission uh, in the book, the complete story of Tishrei. I should point out that about the earlier work that I was talking about, the one from the, the letter from the spring of 1954. Uh, it seems that this sefer was never published. Uh, we, don't, we don't know exactly who this author was and we don't know exactly which book this is referring to. As far as I once asked Rabbi Levine in Levine at the library and he said, Kinida, this book was never, uh, was never published. The Rebbe also wrote to him in that letter that if he doesn't uh, follow through with all 50 corrections, and the Rebbe is asking him not to even mention that he saw the manuscript. That's how important that issue was uh, for the Rebbe. Okay. Now here, there's a famous uh, a problem that has been raised by a number of people. And that is that the MS is that the Shalshalas Hakabbalah is not the original source of this story. Now, there are earlier sources. Um, in fact, a very important source, the Erz who is a Rishan, and uh, he lived in Vienna, Rabbi Yitzchak of Vienna, a very important Rishan, and in his sefer, Erzaruah, he brings the story, he writes as follows, in Hoches Rosh Hashanah, Simin Reish, Ayin, he writes as follows, Matsasi Miksav or Rabbi Ephraim of Bon. I found a manuscript from Rabbi Ephraim of Bon. Rabbi Ephraim of Bon is a known individual because a number of the chronicles that were written about the First Crusade and, uh, and from later persecutions as well were authored by him. And I found in his manuscript that Rab Amnoin Yassad Unasana Toikev, Al Mikra Harashi Iroloi, because of the story that happened to him, Vezela And here is the story. And now he starts quoting from this, Abba of Bon. And the story goes on, including with the detail that he asked that his tongue. Be removed. It's one thing to say about the Shalshalas Hakabbalah that things aren't bediok over there. It's quite another to say such a thing about a story that's presented in one of the works of the great Rishonim, the Ur Zeruah. So I definitely think that this is noteworthy. However, what I want to say is the following. I am not sure that presenting the fact that this story is in the Ur Zeruah would make all that much of a difference for what the Rebbe was trying to achieve. And that's because what I like today what I'd like to do today during our class is to actually show that this one comment from the Rebbe in the spring of 1954 is not an one isolated comment it's part of a much greater pattern indeed during our time today we'll show how on 10 separate occasions the Rebbe uh, uh, pointed to specific stories and did something very similar to what he did with this online story Referring to the Shalshala HaKabala, the Rebbe did very similar in 10 other uh, instances. Uh, The Rebbe was involved and reviewed many works and books and people sent a lot of things to the Rebbe and the Rebbe had an opportunity to weigh in on so many different subjects. And over the years, there were on numerous occasions, times when the Rebbe pointed to certain stories and pointed that there were flaws in these stories. And I've been collecting these over the past uh, few years. Uh, But today we're going to limit... The, uh, the sources that we're gonna look at, and we're gonna look at a very narrow subcategory within this, uh, within this topic. In other words, like this, sometimes what happens is that the Rebbe would write to someone and say, you know, you wrote a story about a certain individual, but that can't really be true, he wasn't alive during that time, or the years don't match up. I'm not interested in those types of corrections uh, for, uh, for today's presentation. Or sometimes the rebel will just say, this is quite shocking to imagine that so-and-so would have said something like that. It's out of line with what his shitta was, and so therefore I question the veracity of that story. That too doesn't really concern us here today. What we're looking for is... Specific instances when the Rebbe pointed to a certain story and said, "This raises halachic questions. This raises moral questions. This raises questions of menschlichkeit." And therefore, the Rebbe would say, "I question whether the story, in fact, happened in this way. Was the meso- Do we have such a good Mesoira to be so comfortable in saying that we have the story perfectly? And even if we do, I'll show you." Sometimes the Rebbe said. It may may not be the best educational idea to share this particular type of story. And for this, we're gonna share 10 examples, 10 is enough to establish uh, a pattern, and that's gonna be the common denominator of all these sources that we're gonna be looking at right now. So let's go and let's begin. Number one, we're gonna do this, most of these uh, cases are about Hasidic stories. Hasidic stories are the ones that are more popular, and uh, as a result, Uh, I think there was more opportunity to comment about Hasidic stories versus others. Also, there was a different issue, as we're going to see, that uh, there were those people who have thought uh, that Hasidim were not careful about halacha. And as a result, when you have a story of Hasidim that seems to lend itself to that type of stereotype, there's an extra sensitivity that's present for these types of stories. And so that's why all 10 of the examples that we're going to look at are indeed from Hasidic stories. So let's begin with number one. Number one is as follows. In 1953, there was a man in Montreal by the name of Rabbi Avram Stern. He printed a sefer called Chutim Hamishulashim. Most of the sefer is Chidushim Al Hashas. But in the, in the beginning of the sefer, he includes numerous Hasidic stories that he had heard in Europe. In the back of the sefer, he thanks the people who helped publish the sefer. And among them are some of the notable Chabad uh, individuals who lived in Montreal at the time, Rabbi Yitzchak Kendall, Rabbi Menachem Greenglass, Rabbi Moshe Eliol Gerlitzki, so clearly he, w- he knew these individuals well. The third story is as follows. I'll just summarize the story briefly. He says that there was a man by the name of Reb Hirsch who was a Rav in Charkov, and he was the father of Reb Pinchas Bala and the fa- father of Reb Shmelke, the two brothers. Anyway, he was not a Chassid, and uh, his friends wrote to him saying that the Baal Shemtiv lives in your area. We're asking you to do everything in your power to try to stop him and get in his way. Anyway, he decided he doesn't want to get involved. He's not a political person. He's going to leave this whole issue aside. What happened? One day it happened that he had a shila and an issue in Taras mishpacha. And the woman went to the mikvah. It a shailah. Whether the tfila was a good tefillah or was not a good tefillah, he uh, paskin that it was a good tefillah. But then he thought more about it and he had harata and he decided that it's actually not a good tefillah. So he decided he wants to go run over to their house to let them know it was already night. He comes uh, knocking on the door and he says, I just wanted to let you know that I made a mistake in the psak. And in fact, the woman is not her." So they let him know from inside the house that it's too late because uh, things already happened. So he felt really uh, guilty about this uh, whole thing. So he makes, uh, he's reflecting, why would this takalah have happened to me? You know what? Because my friend's great sadikim told me that I needed to disturb the Baal Shemtiv, but I didn't listen to them, so that's why this happened and so let me go and try to disturb the Balshamtav so he, he he comes to the hut of the Balshamtav he comes to the house and uh, to see what's going on over there and at the time there's a woman standing in front of the Balshamtav she's an aguna and she's asking the Balshamtav for help for her her husband to be identified well the Balshamtav looks at her note and uh, immediately puts it down and he goes outside the implication of the story is that he went the is a he went to the outhouse he came back he did not do natilus yadaim looked again at this woman's kvittel that had the name of her husband and right then told her you should go to such and such place this is where you will find your husband either you will be reunited or you will receive a get so uh, reb hirsch is thinking, okay, here we go. I see that the Baal Shem Tev indeed is a problematic figure because look at the fact that he went to a restroom and he came back without doing Natilis Yadayim. He's uh, getting involved in this, so it's a questionable uh, behavior. Immediately the Baal Shem Tev said, bring water. He did Nettiles Yedayim. He said the bracha of Ashayatzar, And then he went over to Reb Hirsch and he said, the psak Din that you gave for this and this family, you think it's wrong, really it's right. And he brought evidence justifying all uh, 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 why he's saying that the tefillah was a kasherah tefillah. And then he explained, I'm sure you're wondering about this aguna, that I did this bizarre behavior of going out to the restroom, and then before doing Ashayatsar yatsar, and before doing it, Yadaim, I responded to her. And the reason is as follows. I looked in Ghanedin, I looked in Gehenna. I looked in all the different holy places where Jews are found, and I could not find this was was woman's husband. I had no choice but I had to enter the world of the sitra Akhra, the other side, the negative forces, and so therefore this was my way of doing it. Yes, it's dangerous, but for a woman who need who's an aguna who needs help, what wouldn't I do to be able to help her? And when Reb Hirsch saw that, he decided that the Baal is right, and he will never bother the Baal again. This is story number three, that Rebbe Avram Stern wrote in his Sefer, Chutim Hamish He sent the Sefer into the Rebbe, and the Rebbe wrote him a letter also in the same year, in the year of 1954, in Adar of Tavshin Yud Dalit. The Rebbe wrote him as follows. Even if the story we had a, a, a documented tradition and was in, uh, accurate in all its details, very questionable whether it's a good idea to publicize it, print it, and in a language of Yiddish, which means even people who aren't very learned are are learned are going to be uh, exposed to the story. So that's one point. And then the Rebbe mentions another point. It's close to certain. That the story overall, or some key elements, are not true. The concept of nephilos that we do, uh, after Shemina Esrei demonstrates this point, because according to Kabbalah, what is the concept of Nophila no where we rest the head on the arm? This is the concept of going into the world of Klipa in order to fix things up, the esoteric Kabbalistic concept that I uh, can't say I fully understand. But the Rebbe says, when, how do we do n- 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 in a shul, a place where it has a safe with talus and with a tefillin. In other words, the idea, let's say it's true that you need to enter the world of the other side in order to fix something there. That's not done in this way where you're going to the restroom before Asha Yatzar. The whole thing just sounds really uh, bizarre and contrary to standard uh, Orthodox Jewish behavior. And so therefore, the Rebbe is saying two points. Number one, even if it were true, I don't know that we should be writing such a story. And secondly, I actually don't really believe that the story is true because do we have a real clear good Meseira that really tells us that all the details of the story are uh, accurate given the fact that it raises some questions that are at the very least halachically questionable. That's demonstration number one. Number two, the same book. It's the same letter. Rabbi Avram Stern, in this book, in Chutam Amin Shaloshim, his fifth story, his fifth story is also about the Baal Shem And we're going in order of the, of the Rebbe's. We're going in, the, in, a, in, in a historical chronology. So it's another Maizot of the Baal Shem where he says as follows. Once the Baal Shemtiv took his Talmudim on a walk, and they came to a tree, they stopped by this tree, and they start doing a tikkun by this tree. And the Baal Shemtiv says a story of why they need to do this tikkun, this act of rectification by this tree. He says, once upon a time there was a Jew, he was a Yeresha Mayim. He was involved in business. He traveled to Moscow to settle some accounts that were there with a non-Jewish supplier that he had. Uh, He met the daughter of this supplier. The daughter of the supplier really liked him and convinced him to stay with her. And ultimately, he ended up staying in Moscow marrying this non-Jewish girl. And they sent a letter back home to his Jewish wife saying that he had died. While in Moscow, he gives birth to two children. These are not Jewish children because they're born from a non-Jewish wife. One day, he goes out, or one night, he goes out to take a walk. And he hears a voice crying. He approaches this person and says, why are you crying? The person says, I'm crying because tonight is the night of Yom Kippur. I'm here in Moscow. I converted to Christianity. So for me, it is forbidden to walk into a I can get into all types of legal trouble if I do but I really want to return to Yiddishkeit, but what am I supposed to do? So this Jew who now married this non-Jew in Moscow, uh, all of a sudden is Nisoyder uh, and is Nisragesh, and he says his story of how he was married and he lived in a Jewish shtetl and now he's here married to a non-Jew and has already two children with her. So the Mishumid told him, listen, why don't you just go? You didn't convert. Why don't you just go back home? And this is what he did. That night, immediately, he left and went back to his uh, darf, and he became a, a Baal tshuva. However, his Gentile wife loved him and pursued him and eventually found him and came to the shtetl and brought this man to Adin Teirah, together with his Jewish wife. And he said like this, I want to marry this person. I want to be married to this uh, man. If you don't give me my way... I will let everyone know what happened, and it will be a very big Chilol Hashem for everyone to learn that he lived with me in Moscow for a number of years. He needs to give his wife a get. I will convert, together with my two children. We will give her, the first wife, a lot of money, and this is my proposal. So the rabbi turns to the Jewish wife and says, listen, you have no choice. You have to accept the get. She accepted the get. She received her money, and this Yid, with his non-Jewish wife, who had now converted, moved to a different shtetl, and uh, they're living there. Now, this non-Jewish woman who converted her parents, they want to be with her. So they came, and they also converted. We had five gairim that emerged from this story. The woman, her two children, and her two parents. So the Baal Shemtev then says, In this tree, the neshama of this mishumad, the guy who was sitting there on that night of Yom Kippur, saying he wanted to go to Shul, but he can't. But he is the one who encouraged this year to return home. How many Jews did he produce besides for encouraging one Jew to do Teshuvah? He produced five Jews because there were five Gadim. Isn't that enough? And with that statement, this was the Tikkun that this soul received and was able to return to its source. This is story number five reported by Rabbi Avram Stern in his Sefer, Chutim Hamishulashim. And in the same letter of the Rebbe, the Rebbe writes about this story. This is a very, very questionable story to make this align with the din in Torah, right? You don't come to a Jewish woman and say that because of this type of extortion, you need to accept a divorce from, this, uh, from your husband so that he could marry this woman who she, he was having an affair with. The Gamin Timsaimeisha called Pratyasipura meeting with theakan. even if it is true that all of the details are accurate, accurate, However, pirsum sipurim Kaelu, the Kosher and shem habalshantev achasidus stories that are connected in some way to the balshantev or techesidus have Vadai. the loss is certain uscharoi Besafik gadol and whether there's going to be any benefit from saying these types of story is questionable and so therefore here again not a good idea to share this story. Example number three, this uh, recently came to my attention. I have a friend by the name of Reb Mendel Glasman. Who shared with me uh, that by the Shloishim of Reb Meir Harlig, they, uh, they gave out the documents, copies of the documents rel- relevant to the following story. In 1960, Tzach and Eretz Yisrael, Tzirei Agudas Chabad, published an article about the Baal Shem Tev, And this included a few stories about the Baal Shem as well. It was 200 years from the passing of the Baal Shem And there they wrote a story that goes as follows Once upon a time, the Baal Shem was in Shul. And he stopped in the middle of davening, went outside of the shul, bought wood from a non-Jew, asked him to bring it into the shul for heating purposes, paid him, and gave him a cup of vodka. The non-Jew was so impressed how he was treated so well. He said, this is amazing. My non-Jews, they don't treat me as well as you, the Jews, are treating me right now. Later, the students asked the Baal Shem Tov for a clarification. Why in Be'emsah did he go out in order to do this buying, uh, to engage in this transaction? And he said that he saw during his davening that there was a kitrog, there was a heavenly critique on Jews in the villages, that they are not treating the non-Jews respectfully and that they are stealing from non-Jews. And so by having a non-Jew say that the Jews treat me properly, this Quelled that a uh, kitrug lamaila, and so this was the fix. So the Rebbe wrote in, in, in his handwriting, you're able to see the Rebbe wrote, uh, Lishanois change the way you're writing the story, to negate the mistaken assumption that people should think that the Bashanta was in the middle of a and during that moment he walked out, just rewrite the story so that people shouldn't think about it in this way. Again, this is a third example where we're able to see this pattern emerging. Let's go to another example. I'm not 100% sure about this one. But there's a good chance that what I'm going to say right now is accurate. The same year in 1960, Emmanuel Shachat, Rabbi Emanuel Shachat, was writing articles about the Balshemtiv. And uh, the Rebbe sent him notes and corrections to these articles. There is one of them that concerns a story. And the Rebbe wrote as follows. Bahana gaia sipur sipor ha de with regard to the well-known story about the calling out of the rooster yeslasaken fixed the story al pianitfas be contras tidas axsedes in line with the way the story is presented in the contras tidas axsedes this was a contras that was printed in 1946. It's a letter of the Friedrich Rebbe. And there it indeed has the story of the crying of the rooster. And the the Rebbe was telling Emmanuel Shachat, Rabbi Emmanuel Shachat, that he should correct the story in line with the way it's over there. What happened here? We don't know. It's just one line. I don't know. Maybe someone else has more information. But I think what happened here is as follows. The story is well known. The way it's produced in Kuntras Teres Achzidis, it says that there was a child on Yom Kippur who yelled out kukuriku like a rooster, and everyone tried to quiet him down because it was disrespectful in the shul, and the Baal Shem Tev said that because he had such sincerity, that tefillah pierced heaven more than anyone else's tefillah. That's the way the story appears in the Kuntras Teres Achzidis that was published in 1946. However, there are other sources with a similar story. There's a sefer that was printed in the year 1896 that's called Kfutsas Yaakov. And there's a very similar story over there. And in fact, the Hakdama, the Mechaber, over there, his name was uh, Rabbi Yaakov ben Meshulam Nason. So Rabbi Yaakov writes over there that he heard most of these stories from his father, who heard it from his father, who was a Ben biased by the Baal Shemtiv. And there he has this story. though this, again, it's impossible to know which particular story he's saying he heard from his father or heard it from his father, we don't know. He just says most of the stories. But he has the story, but instead of the child yelling out like a rooster, the child is using a chalil, is using some sort of flute, which obviously raises serious halachic uh, concerns. I think what happened here would seem that Rabbi Shachat, when he wrote this article, wrote it about the chalil, wrote it about the flute, and that the Rebbe was telling him that given the halachic problems with uh, 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 saying the story in that way, he should follow not that tradition, but the tradition that the Friedrich Rebbe produced in Kuntras Teres in 1946. And if so, if this assumption is correct, then this would be another example uh, of, of, of the Rebbe uh, following this particular pattern. Uh this closes out the section on the Balshemtiv. I did four examples. I will uh, mention another thing that I think belongs in this category, and that is there are stories, not in Chabad sources, but there are stories, uh, uh there is a story of the Balshamtiv being in an a sukkah, and the Goinim that lived in his town came over to him, and they said that it's not kosher a Sukkah. And they were arguing about this. And the Baal Shem was was uh, was was. Was stating that the sukkah is befedish kosher. Now, obviously, by definition, it means that it wasn't kosher Lakuliyama. And uh, the balshemtiv then he leaned his hand on the table, and ultimately they later saw there a note that said that in heaven we decree that the balshemtiv sukkah is indeed kasher. So this story seems to fall into the line with the other stories that we saw because it's saying that at best the balshemtiv engaged in questionable behavior in terms of the sukkah. Here, interestingly. Instead of the Rebbe uh, ignoring it, or instead of the Rebbe saying that it's not true, or that some of the details aren't true, the Rebbe actually chose to explain why the Baal Shem Tev would have done this. On two separate occasions, the Rebbe did it. In Tavshon Chav Hei on the second day of Sukkot, and in Tavshon Chav on the second day of Sukkot, each with a different explanation of why the Baal Shem would have sat in a less than ideal sukkah. So it's a little different, but it's also very similar. Because what the, by providing an explanation and a justification, it it allows the story to become a normal story that that won't have a negative impression and that won't have negative, uh, negative consequences. I should, however, point out that really any story, including the ones we saw earlier, you could always find an explanation or a justification. I think at Rebbe's point was, why go into that world where you say a story, and it raises questions, and now you have to figure out how to make it stand up. It's better to just not recite the story, or not say the story, or to assume that that detail of the story isn't accurate, as we've, as we've been saying. Here, however, we do see that at least in one case, the Rebbe took a problematic story, and infused it with some meaning to allow it to stand. Okay, now let's continue and go to story number five. Story number five is going to be, we'll do a, a section of two stories that come from uh, non-Chabad Rebbes, meaning from Polish Chassidus. So, Reb in his Sefer Shmuz V'sipurim, this was printed for the first time in Toshon Chavdalid. he says in the name of his father the following story. He says that once upon a time, there was a Chassid in Chachnik who was a Chassid of the Chernobler, And his name was Reber and when Remul of Chernobyl would come to Chachnik, he would stay in his house. He was not a wealthy man, but he was from the Khhuve of the Hasidim of Chernobyl. One time Remul of Chernobyl notifies that he is indeed coming to town. however, he will not stay by Reberel's house. And in fact, he's telling Rebero that he's not allowed to come visit him even once, unless he gives him 2,000 silver, silver rubles. Reberel is very shocked to hear this. He never heard such language from the Rebbe before. He starts crying. He starts looking for people who can perhaps help him. What is he supposed to do in this situation? Anyway, the day arrives, everyone is happy. He's in pain um, and he goes over to a friend and says, please go over to the Rebbe and ask the Rebbe that he should suspend this uh, decree and allow me to come to visit him. Uh, The Rebbe says, absolutely not. Not $1 less than 2000 silver rubles. Anyway, he also sent note to him that when I leave town and everyone comes to join me, you're not allowed to be there uh, as well. A few weeks later, uh, the soldiers come to uh, Russian soldiers come to town and they quarter in his house. In the middle of the night, they receive a command that they need to get up and they need to leave quickly. And so, uh, in haste, they left their uh, chest of money that this uh, battalion of soldiers had, they left it in his house. Uh, they realized what happened, they came back to Chachnik to look, they went through all the houses, they didn't remember where they stayed, uh, they couldn't find it, they did not check this one house of Reberal. They came back a second time, and again, they did not check his house, and they gave up. So Reberal understood that this is now available to him. And uh, he waits a few more months, nothing's happening. He opens it up, and the first thing he does, he takes out 2,000 ruble, and he runs over to the Matal of Chernobyl to give him the money. The Matal of Chernobyl says, no, thank you, I don't need your money. The reason I said this, because I saw in heaven that you were, bakush, you were destined to have a bracha of wealth. The problem was that you, they were waiting for you to ask, sincerely, and you, ha- you weren't asking sincer- sincerely, and so therefore I had to create a motive for you to really want this, and that was the reason why I said what I said, and the story concludes that this is the wealthy Rappaport family comes from this particular story. This is the Maisa. This Misa was said by a chassid named Reb Shimon Goldman in front of the Rebbe, uh, Shabbos Parshas Mishpatim Tov Shemem Zayin. He was inviting people to participate in a mitzvah Shabbos Malava Malka. And the custom was that part of the invitation, he would say each year either a Dvar, dvar Torah or a story. And this is the story that he said uh, that particular time. The Rebbe jumped in and the Rebbe said as follows, even a simple person, even a grubber Jung a very physical person, uh, would be so terribly pained. ad If everyone is allowed to go see the Rebbe, everyone's allowed to be part of the, the davenings and the fabrengins, but he's not allowed to. And if the goal is to cause a little bit of pain so that he should daven, then all you needed to say is, I'm not staying in your house. That would have been enough. Or to say, you can't come for one tefillah. You can't come for one filah. So then he would start davening, and then that should be sufficient. But the idea that a tzaddik would cause someone so much pain, that during the entirety of the visit, he wouldn't be allowed to come, even when he's leaving town, he wouldn't be able to come, very difficult to say that this was a necessary, and the Rebbe also seems to imply that this would have been unethical on the part of the Rebbe. And so therefore the Rebbe suggests that the story, uh, the way it was transmitted, grew a long beard. And uh, you can say that actually all this happened really quickly, where he said, I'm not going to stay by you. And then he started davening, and then the whole story with the Russian soldiers happened, and was resolved really quickly. And, uh, and uh, he didn't miss anything, or maybe he missed one fila or something like that. Uh, uh, here you see another type of story that fits the pattern that we, are, uh, that we are demonstrating. Interestingly, when they reprinted Shmuzve Sipurim in 1990, you would have thought they would have added a footnote, something they they completely ignored what the Rebbe said by this particular uh, Fabringen. Now, let's go to the sixth example. The sixth example comes from Rabbi Zevin's Sefer, Sh- uh, Sipurei Chasidim. Rabbi Zevin produced the Sefer, where he has many different, interesting stories. And uh, the Rebbe actually commented about two of them, but one doesn't really fit our pattern so much, so we're not gonna get into that one. This is the one we're gonna talk about. He says the following story of Reb Zusha. The story goes as follows, Reb Zusha of Anapoli. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a dream. His father came to him and said, I want you to convert. He had this dream not once, not twice, but three times. Reb Zusha says, there must be that there is a cross that is in, the, in this person's grave, dig up the grave and find the cross. So they dug up the grave. Indeed, they found that there was a coin inside the grave, and on the coin, there was a cross. They reported the story to the Gra, and the Grah said, wow, uh, this is in fact indicated by a Gemara in Yerushalmi. My question is, how did Reb Zusha know this Yerush- Yerushalmi? They let Reb Zusha know about this, and Reb, Reb- Zusha said, I got it from where the Yerushalmi got it. This is the story. So in the year Tavshon Tesvav, 1955, in the summer, al- of Tamas, the Rebbe wrote to Rebbe Zevin a letter. And the letter says the following, uh, the, with the following introductory point. There are stories of Hasidim that are quite shocking. Um, and some of the people who hear these stories say that a certain person didn't follow the law didn't go and this has a negative effect on how they relate to chassidus really in, in the detail in the story could remove the entire question a small change And because many of these stories did not go through reliable sources and were translating from one language to another, therefore we can reasonably assume that indeed uh, these stories are inaccurate. And with that introduction, the Rebbe says about this story, about Zusha of Anapali, it's a major halachic question whether based on a dream you're allowed to dig up a grave. It's a shiloh of Nivol hames. Whereas if you change it, that rather than digging up the grave, it was B'svivoyf's HaKever, it was within the Dalat so then you don't get into the shilus, and this would be an appropriate correction. Rabbi Zevin wrote back to the Rebbe that he feels really strongly that he knows who said the story, and it's like a Chashu of its Mitzvah, that this is the way Way, a particular rabbi said the story, then we should leave it uh, that way. But, and this correspondence continued with the Rebbe, continued asserting his point of view on this matter. And with that, we have story number six. Story number seven brings us back to the original letter, the first letter of the Rebbe that we saw earlier on. And in that story, that's where uh, the Rebbe questioned the detail about Reb Amnoin asking that his tongue be excised. And, uh, and there, there are another few stories as well that the Rebbe says to omit. In fact, there are another four stories that the Rebbe says to omit. It's hard to tell what these stories are. One of them is between Lag Emer and Shavuot. You're able to tell from the structure of the letter that it either has to do with Lag Emer or it has to do with Shavuot. It's a story of Reb Chaim Brisker, a story of Rebbe, Rebbe Yitzchak and then another, another story that doesn't have any... Uh, uh, information, but there is one story that we could figure out what the Rebbe was referring to. It's the story of Reb David lelever I didn't take the time to look where exactly is the first source of the story, but it's a very well-known story. Uh, Reb David lelever was a Talmud of Rebbe Melech. His dates are roughly 1746 to 1814. So around the time of the Alter Rebbe. And uh, the story basically goes that uh, they were waiting for him to come to Shul, Kol Nidre, and he does not show up. Uh, and uh, it's becoming night so they can't wait any longer and so they uh, go ahead and they daven without him later they ask him what happened he says he was on his way to Shul he heard a child crying he goes into the house he sees there's no mother no father they had gone to Shul for Yom Kippur davening leaving the child alone he realized more important than being in Shul for Kol Nidre is for him to uh, calm this child down which is what he did and only later was he able to go to Shul this was the story and the Rebbe writes in this same letter to this unknown author of this book, omit David Lelever. this story. Why? In America, it's like one thing Jews are doing and very much careful about, very particular about, is Sholonya Kippur. So you're essentially going to be throwing out a new heter through this story. Someone will say, you know something, I heard that story. I haven't spent uh, time with Aunt Rosa in a long time. So maybe instead of going to Shul on Yom Kippur, I should spend some time with Aunt Rosa because Aves Sisrael comes before uh, Shol. Which, as I said before, we don't know what that particular story uh, is. Okay, let's move on to story number eight. This is a story that concerns the Altadeb. And it brings us back to the book by Reb Avram Stern, Chutam HaMeshulashem, printed in Montreal in 1953. The story is as follows. He says that the Alter Rebbe meets one day a very prominent wealthy man and a big Talmud Chachem whose name is Reb I'm not going to give all the details of this story because this one is a very long one. I'll just share the crucial points for the presentation. Reb says to the Alter Rebbe, I hear that you're Bucky and Shas. The Alter Rebbe says only half. Dev says, with half, which half? The Alter Rebbe says, whichever half you want. They then get into a discussion about how many Tashmas there are in the Gemara and they start arguing of how many time the word tashmah appears in the Gemara, and then the Rebbe resolves it because the difference was what if, you, if, you, if you're counting a tashmah that's not introducing a question and not introducing an answer of, of uh, trying to prove one way or other, there's a different type of Tashma, and that's the reason why they were having their disagreements. So Reb, 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 Reb Nase, not, the Rabnata then proceeds to ask him a question, and the question is a stira between two midrashim, and we're not going to get into it. It's a long question, and the Alter gave a fascinating, very fascinating, and lengthy answer. The Nata is very nispal from this, and uh, that pretty much concludes the story. and the And the, the story concludes with the following line: The Chasideh Chabad add that the Pinchas Karitz said, "Excuse me, Chasideh Chabad add that the Pinchas Karitz years earlier met the al Rebbe and told asked him the question." And told him the answer, and telling him, So, in other words, really, it was a miracle that a Pinchas of Kharitser provided all this information to the altar Rebbe who used it years later. So, in the same letter, the Rebbe writes to him, There's a Kufnun Vav, where he says, If you do not say, recite a teaching in the name of somebody else, you're Eurechaim. And so therefore, move on, it is self-understood, the ending of the story, where the Alta Rebbe is using, it's not, he's not saying a B'Shem he's using it to gain leverage, and to kind of make an impression on Reb Nata, when in reality, it wasn't his Chiddush, his answer, but someone else's answer, highly unethical, and so therefore, it cannot be that the ending of the story is true, and I'm actually surprised that you would write this on the Alta Rebbe. <clears throat> story number nine, is a very famous incident in Chabad history. There was a magazine that was known as a journal that was known as Bit'on Chabad that came out in the 50s and the 60s, early 70s. The last issue was in the beginning of, uh, in, the, in the early 70s is the last issue when this came out. And the journal ceased publication over the issue that we're discussing here today, uh, uh, over a story, a problematic story. And this is also a story of the Alta Rebbe. And they wrote in the Nissen Tafshan Lamed Gimel uh, edition, uh, issue, they wrote a story in the name of the Rebbe Ma'arash. And basically the story goes as follows. Once on a Friday there was a shailah on an animal. Is it kosher or is it not kosher? And the Rebbe and Liadi said, that a machloikas taz and shach. And the shach says, I'm going with the shach. They came to the Altarebbe, the Altarebbe says, going with the taz, it's kosher, everyone bought meat from that animal and used it, prepared it for Shabbos. Then Shabbos was coming, it was time to daven mincha, the Altarebbe was davening Shemayin Esrei, and he's davening Shemayin Esrei longer than usual. After he finishes Shemayin Esrei, he makes an announcement, the animal is treif, and now uh, not only people don't have meat for Shabbos, but remember everyone's kalim is treif because of the fact that they already used it. After Shabbos, al explained that when he was david, Shemayn Mincha, he usually sees the souls that need rectification. Uh, but this time, he saw the Shach, and he was very nuspa. How could the Shach is not a typical visitor Friday during this rectification period? And the shach said, because of your psak, I am having an ikuv in my aliyah, where I'm not able, my soul isn't able to have the normal aliyah that it's supposed to have on a Friday uh, leading into Shabbos. And so therefore, I'm asking with you to change your psak. And the Alter Rebbe indeed changed his psak because of this. This is the story, the way it was published in the Biton Chabad, in Nisan of Tavshon Lamed Gimel. Well, the Rebbe wrote to the editors, a letter essentially protesting that this story was published because of all the questions that it raises. Does a Rav have the right to change the psaq based on some sort of vision? After paskining the halacha one way, uh, uh, changing the psak because the shach would come and plead with you to change it? Uh, number one. And, and number two, it almost sounds like transactional where the, the shach was asking he didn't make an argument. The shach was just saying, I need this for my aliyah and my neshama. Uh, This is how halacha works. It raises questions. Now, of course, can you answer these questions? As with all of these stories, you can answer these questions. But I think the Rebbe's point over here was, why get into these murky waters, where even if you're giving answers to these questions, you essentially leave a certain assumption. Why go there? And the Rebbe was not happy about this. Well, what they did was, in the next issue of Biton Chabad, they actually wrote a letter to the editor, uh, signed by uh, Rasha Tevis, uh, three letters, Ayan Hay Gimel, and uh, this Ayan Hay Gimel wrote this question to the editor, how could you publish the story? Uh, it has all these problems. And then the editors themselves of the journal responded with uh, all the halachic sources, that's not the end of the world to Paskin based on visions, etc., etc. Well, the Rebbe was not satisfied because I don't think that was the approach the Rebbe uh, wanted. And uh, that was why uh, the journal essentially ceased to exist because Rebbe wanted that a new editor should rise to the position and take a chryas and they weren't able to find anyone uh, at the time. Now what's interesting about this story, you know, there's a, I have a friend by the name of Ref Shmuel Super and he's an expert, a huge expert in all things related to Sipur uh in Chabad. And he tells me that in all of the collections, in almost all of the collections of Chabad, Stories, this story is there. This story was a bestseller. Everyone had it in their collection, whether it was Falakan or whether it was Rabbi Perlo or whatever it was, all over the place we find this story. But nonetheless, the Rebbe had this particular reservation, and this is example number nine. And now our final example. Our final example relates to not a Rebbe, but a Rebbe Hillel Paracher. And uh, Reb Zalman Dochman in his Sefer L'Shem Oizen, the, wrote the following story uh, in this book. He wrote that once Reb was traveling and he would raise money for the important causes that he was raising money. And he was in the area of Nikolai. And the people went out to the different small villages to, raise, to bring the money to him. He didn't literally go to each and every farm and inn. And uh, they brought him a sack of money. Uh, one of the places that had donated money was a certain inn where non immodest behavior took place and the story does not elaborate on what type of immodest behavior. Anyway, uh, they had given 10 ruble. When Reb Hillel received the money, obviously he didn't know what came from where, he didn't hear anything, but he stuck his hand into the bag, he took that 10 ruble coin and he threw it out. Uh, In other words, he doesn't wanna have the money coming from this immoral place. This is the story that Reb Zalman Dukhman uh, wrote. The Rebbe wrote to him a brief letter that says, Ion, you have a problem here of You know, You can't just take money and throw it out? And then the Rebbe added another interesting point. Every Jew is obligated to give tzedakah. What gives you a right to not accept tzedakah from a certain Jew? Especially a sinner. How does a sinner find shuvah? One of the things is through tzedakah. So the Rebbe said, maybe you can say, there was mamisha inyan here where the money was without elaborating on how that would have happened. But secondly, the Rebbe says, maybe this detail in the story is takanat Maybe instead of throwing it out, maybe he returned the money. And if he returned the money, it only resolves one of the issues. It's no longer baltashchis, but it's still not accepting stucca from a certain Jew. But here again, we see the same pattern where there was a question, whether you want to say it's a halachic question or it's an ethical question, it's a menschlechite question, that depends on each of these 10 stories that we look uh, we looked at, but definitely there's enough here to develop a pattern, and that pattern is, as we said at the outset, that when we have a story that has these types of questions, so there's two points. Point number one is lavdafka the story is bediuk, and point number two is even if it is b'diuk, lav lavdafka, we should be publicizing this type of story, and that brings me back to the question of shalshalas HaKabala versus Arzarua. Even if we establish that the story of an Asana Toiketh, the story of Reb Amnoin, is indeed from of the Urzeruah. So I don't know if it would make all that much of a difference. It's very possible that the Rebbe would still feel that this idea of a Jew inviting that a part of his body be cut off, and volunteering uh, that type of thing... It raises halachic questions. It also, for some people, it's a little bit of a turnoff to hear that someone would, that a religious person would say something. And so, therefore, even if it's true, as we saw in many of these other stories, maybe it's not the best idea to publicize this type of story. And so, I don't know if it really makes a difference has hakabbalah versus ar zarua. And I want to share the following as well. In fact, there's a story in the Gemara. And uh, it's a well-known story in the Gemara. And we see that the Rebbe shared a, a, a similar hesitation about sharing this particular story, at least in certain settings. I'm referring to the story of Rabba This is a very well-known story in Gemara. In Megillah, where Rabbah slaughters Rebbe And uh, the Rebbe has a beautiful explanation about this particular passage in Gemara. The Rebbe did not share this explanation on Purim. It was shared the Shabbos after Purim. Shabbos parashashmini, itof shemem dalit. And the Rebbe said, I probably should have spoken about this Purim, but I didn't want to bring this because it's a very shocking Gemara. And it raises all types of questions. And yes, I'm going to go and explain it, as the Rebbe did in that famous talk on that Shabbos afternoon. But some people may just remain focused with the questions or they won't accept my explanation. And that's something that I don't want to to be on radio, television, which is the way the weekday fabrengens, the Purim Fabringans were now. And the Rebbe therefore added, therefore when you publish my talk for today, Yiddish and Hebrew is okay, but it should not be published in English. Obviously the Rebbe wasn't questioning the story in the Gemara, but we see that other point, that even if we do have a good source for the story, it may not always be the wisest educational idea to share that particular story. I wanna conclude with the following. Because there's one thing, there's one story that I think is, um, steps away from this rule. And that is, there is one story that the Rebbe repeated numerous occasions, and in fact, does seem to run contrary to halacha. And of course, as with everything, you could always give an answer and an explanation. But um, the, I think the Rebbe's point was, why go there? But here, in this particular case, the Rebbe did go there. I'm referring to the story that he said about his teacher. We assume this was Rabbi Isser Nissen Driven, who was from Kovna. who was a Litvak. During World War I, he fled and came to uh, Yakatrinislav, And it uh, looks like he taught the Rabbi. He learned with the Rabbi Gemara. And uh, the Rabbi mentioned on numerous occasions that although it's per- forbidden to study Torah on Tisha B'Av, but he saw his teacher learning on Tisha B'Av. And The Rebbe said that he asked him, "How you talking? Why are you learning Torah on Tishab?" And his teacher said that, his, that according to his estimation, learning on. I'm anyway going to get whipped uh, in Emes. so let it be for this type of sin of learning on Tisha B'Av. The Rebbe mentioned this on numerous occasions, never in public. In, Baya in other words one time the Rebbe did mention Baya but just said that he saw his teacher learning, he didn't add this justification that the person gave but the Rebbe did mention it and it was interesting there's a certain pattern, where did the Rebbe mention it? In meetings with Jewish leaders, when the Rebbe had a meeting with the Kopishnitz of the Rebbe, the Rebbe mentioned the story, when the Rebbe, and that was in in, uh, in, 19, uh, in 1958. When the Rebbe had a meeting with the Belzer Rebbe in 1973, the Rebbe mentioned this story. When the Rebbe meant the Pinchas Menachem Altar of Ger in 1984, the Rebbe mentioned this story. When the Rebbe meant the chief rabbis of Israel, Rabbi Shapiro and Rabbi elio in 1985, the Rebbe mentioned this story. We also have an instance where the Rebbe met an Australian rabbi in 1967, and the Rebbe mentioned this story as well. What's the common denominator in all these cases? In a nutshell, what was happening is that the Rebbe was pushing for a certain good initiative. And as is always the case, there's always a potential drawback. Maybe if we do this, it's going to cause a particular problem. So for example, with the Pinchas Menachem uh, Altar, uh, the Rebbe wanted that they should make the siyum. On the Yerushalmi, they should be big siyumim. So Pinchas Menachem Altar was saying there's a mila, the luchashnias, when things are quiet, still, Right, that's an example. And with each one of these cases, the Rebbe was encouraging that these Jewish leaders should do something bold and audacious, and they expressed hesitation that maybe it's going to lead to something negative. And to that, the Rebbe responded with this story. In other words, the rebel is using it because sometimes Jewish leaders they're uh, sometimes afraid of their own shadow and they're afraid to take that audacious move. So Rebbe was going to say, you know something? If you're going to get shmeisen, let them let, let there be negative consequences for something going wrong in this particular. Area. Okay, so you didn't uh, so you did it be pirsum and you didn't have the mila of shniyah. So if you're going to get patched. Let it be for this type of thing. And likewise which each uh, with all of those particular uh, examples. So why this story from all others uh, seems to be in a different category. Again, the Rebbe didn't share this in public. It wasn't like it was being shared by a fabrengen. But nonetheless, it does stand out as one instance where the Rebbe did mention a story that seems to run contrary to uh, halacha and seemed to derive uh, a lesson from it. But the larger takeaway that from the broader presentation is as follows, the stories that we tell, the stories that we tell reflect the values that we cherish and the values that we want to share with Uh, our children and the next generation and our students. And sometimes uh, we don't realize it's not only about entertainment. Sometimes we fail to recognize that it's not only about being interesting. Every story has a message and every message uh, conveys a value. And the Rebbe was asking and pleading with everyone to ensure that the stories that we tell indeed reflect the best values and the best type of teachings that we want for ourselves and that we want to reflect for our children.